Welcome to the Gas Street Podcast. Our vision as a church is to be light for the city. We really hope you enjoy this message. We, over the next couple of weeks, are going to take a little bit of time just to share a bit more around our vision. And as a church and as a leader, always there's battles and blessings. There's great challenges and complicated things to figure out. But I'm so grateful to be a part of a community where each week we're hearing stories, seeing signs of God at work. Many of you know this is the kind of time where students uh, moved to the city of Birmingham. And on Tuesday night just gone, we had over 100 students gathering together to worship and pray. And just this week, we've seen five students give their lives to follow Jesus. Amazing signs. I love what God is doing in our children at Gas Street Kids. This email came in from a parent saying this, I've just found my girls, aged four and eight, praying together with their hands open, saying, come Holy Spirit, in their bedrooms. Again, amazing signs of children being raised to be expectant that God can meet with them and use them. All over our locations were stories of God moving. This beautiful story came in from a lady at Gas Street South. She said this, I've suffered with my knee for four years now. Day-to-day tasks are challenging as my knee would give way at any given time with constant pain and swelling. My GP sent me for an x-ray which revealed that the inner part of my knee was raised. It was really getting me down. The things I once loved were now restricted, gardening, exercises, and walking long distances. I was at Gas Street South when one of the pastors noticed me walking oddly. I explained what had been happening and he asked if he could pray for me which I gratefully received. A week or two later, I noticed something different. The swelling and the pain had subsided until eventually all the pain had gone. On the 4th of September, 2023, I had an x-ray and a consultant appointment at the hospital. When I saw the consultant, he explained my x-ray showed my knee cap was completely normal. I burst into tears of joy and explained that friends and the pastor had prayed for my knee. Through me talking to him about it and nattering his head off about God, he said with a big smile, I too believe in the power of prayer. This is amazing. A lady in pain. Yes, praise God. A lady in pain for four years and God just intervenes and brings healing. Well, our vision as a church has always been light for the city and beyond, and this is outworked in many, many ways. But a key strategic plan has always been church planting. And we've had the joy over the last seven, eight years of planting five churches. And I love the idea that as we gather today, these communities are meeting in different parts of the city to pray and to worship, carrying a fire for evangelism. But not only that, we've grown to become now a church, which is one church over three locations. We have here at Central, we have Gas Street St. Luke's and Gas Street South. And again, it's beautiful to see what God's doing. But we're really excited to announce that from February 2024, we'll be one church over four locations as we launch Gas Street Longbridge. And already a team is gathering together Uh, Just last week, we had an amazing evening of prayer and worship at Longbridge. We were taking on this big building, St. John's. It's this barn of a building that has fallen into a level of disrepair. And this beautiful congregation have been committed to pray 
and worship, keep the doors open, but have in many ways just asked for the cavalry to come in and have been talking to us. And so we're sending a group. And it might be you live near Longbridge, and I'd love to encourage you to think about getting involved. We'll let you know more and more about how you can do that. Or you might be here and you're thinking, do you know what? I'm a little bit bored. It's okay to admit that. Uh, you know, I want an adventure. And our deep longing for you would be, rather than sitting there getting a little bit comfortable, that you would step into an adventure, maybe go be a part of the team to pray for people, to welcome people, to see God's kingdom come in Longbridge as it is in heaven. And so excited for what God's going to do there and expecting that he's going to move. <clears throat> Today, though, I want to talk about what it means for us to continually outwork this calling for us to be a people of God's presence. And I've called this talk, Presence in the Church, Kingdom in the City. Presence in the Church, Kingdom in the City. If you've tracked with us, whether you're online or gathering here in person over the last little while, you'll have heard us talk about being a church that gathers and scatters. And we want to sharpen this vision we want to sharpen what it means for us to gather and to be a people of worship, a people of God's presence, a people who give of ourselves in thanksgiving and praise, a people who are passionately excited about Jesus Christ. That as we gather, we fuel the fire of worship. But also, we want to be a community and a church that scatters, that out of these intimate, profound encounters of worship, we begin to carry the fire into our places of work, our families, our friends, our communities. We're a church that gathers and scatters. And uh, today, I want to look at this prophetic word we see in Amos and really look around what it means for us to sharpen the axe on the gather. And then next week, Rachel and uh, James Brumwell are going to be looking at the scatter. But in Amos 9, verse 11 we see this amazing prayer, this amazing prophetic word given to the people of Israel. And it's become my prayer, and I hope as a church it becomes our prayer. And God is speaking through Amos to Israel. And if you read the first eight chapters, it's a pretty bleak read. You know, God is disappointed and angry and is just calling out and exposing the sin of the people of Israel, that they've fallen short, that they've turned their back on God, they've disregarded His Word, they've pushed Him to the margins. And God is saying, you know, enough. This is not what I have for you as my people. And then suddenly in chapter 9, we see this burst of hope, this light at the end of the tunnel. And we read this, Amos 9 verse 11. In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins, and rebuild it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all the nations that bear my name, declare the, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman, and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains, and flow from all the hills. Amos is describing the spiritual state of Israel and it's not great. I mean, when you use words like in need of repair, broken walls, ruins, massive rebuild job needed, you get this sense of God calling out. And this prophetic word to the receivers of it would have shocked them, would have offended them. 
Because the people of Israel would have thought of themselves as the nation blessed by God. We're success. We're flourishing. We're thriving. We're doing amazing. But God wasn't looking at the external, outward appearances. We see this time and time again. Humankind are so quick to judge things by the externals, but God looks at the heart. He looks at the spirit and he could see that Israel had fallen away from God. They'd failed to put him at the center of their nation and of their everyday. And Amos is effectively saying, without God, you're on a road to nowhere. It's like you're living in a fallen down shelter, a flimsy tent in the midst of a hurricane. But the hope for the nation of Israel was to be found in returning to God, returning to worship, restoring a place of worship and reminding themselves that they needed to be a people of God's presence. To really understand this prophetic word in Amos, we need to go back to the life of David, which we've been looking at a little bit. And about 250 years prior to this prophecy in Amos, we read about David as king. For those who don't know much of the story of David, David was a shepherd boy, and at the age of about 17, the, the prophet Samuel came to David's family and he anointed David and said, you're going to be the next king of Israel. The current king was a guy called Saul, who again had been disobedient and turned his back on God. And Samuel was saying, God has called and anointed you to be the future king of Israel. But as so uh, often happens with the prophetic, <clears throat> there was a different timescale to perhaps what David would have expected. It wasn't until he was 30 that he eventually was crowned king. And in fact, it was another seven years after that until he ruined, ruled over both Israel and Judah. And so David had a huge amount of time to consider, what will I do as king? What will my reign look like? What are going to be the distinctives of my leadership? Anyone who takes on significant role of responsibility will know, you know, whether you're a president or a prime minister or a CEO of a company or a coach of a sports team. The first acts, the first things you do are very, very significant because it sort of sets the tone of what you're going to be about. They're like statements of intent, a public demonstration of, hey, this is where we're going. This is the sign on the bus. Jump on. This is what we are going to be about. And David's first act as king is to go and get the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence of God, a constant reminder that God, Yahweh, was present with the people of Israel. But this Ark of the Covenant had been sort of left randomly in fields far away, marginalized and pushed to the sides. And David is saying, we're going to bring this and we're going to bring it back to the center, to Jerusalem, and to remind ourselves that God is our God and we are his people and we are about his presence. And so in 2 Samuel 6, starting at verse 12, we read this. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, that would have represented uh, the priests. That's what the, the Levites, the worshippers, would be wearing. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place beside the tent 
that David had pitched for him. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he'd finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. David had years to think about his opening days as king. And I imagine the advisors, the key leaders and influencers of Israel, excited, full of anticipation. You know, what's David going to do? I imagine a bunch of them were thinking, David is this great military leader, this warrior. Surely that is our destiny, that David's going to spend and invest all our money in the military and defense, that we're going to become a great nation and rule over other nations. We're going to defeat our enemies and bring a season of peace. I wonder if others were thinking, it's the economy. David's going to invest in the economy. He's going to bring great wealth and success. That surely has to be the priority. And I imagine David gathering these royal advisors together and saying, hey, i got a plan. Listen to this. We're going to get the Ark of the Covenant, which is miles away. We're going to bring it back to Jerusalem. And I'm going to construct a tent. And we're going to set up 24-7 continual prayer and worship. And we see in 1 Chronicles what that involved, that David and Israel went through uh, 33 years of day-night worship where they employed 4,000 musicians, 288 singers. That is a lot of divas. You know, I imagine the HR people were busy. Uh, And a further 4,000 gatekeepers to run everything. So you had a staff of 8,288 people to keep this tent of worship continually growing and going. And uh, by modern-day money... The equivalent would be around investing $30 million a month into this tent of meeting. And I can imagine the advisors thinking, you are kidding me. We're going to pour all the money of Israel into a tent with some music and song and a couple of prayers. On paper, it looked like a complete political disaster. But David recognized something so significant that the future of Israel, the turning of people's hearts and minds back to God couldn't come through persuasive words or a five-year plan. It could only come through the power of God. And the hope of Israel rested in reminding themselves that we are a people of worship. We are a people of God's presence, that unless we put worship and prayer at the center of our every day, we're gonna fail to outwork the call on us as a nation. David Fritsch, the author, says this, the presence of God was David's political strategy. It was his governmental platform and foundation. He knew the presence of God was the solution to a nation in crisis. When David brought up the ark, he restored the crown to God and acknowledged him to be the rightful king of Israel. David established a government of humility that was dependent upon and revolved around the presence of God. And so for 33 years, under David's rule, Israel, day and night, prayed 
and worshipped. I love this, that anyone who visited Israel, anyone who walked in near Jerusalem would have heard the sound of singing, would have heard the music being offered up night and day. They would have smelt the beautiful smell of barbecue uh, as offerings and sacrifices were being consumed. Anyone who visited Israel would hear and see, it would be clear, smack them right in the temple that this nation was all about worship, that God was the most important thing about who they were, that they would give their very best to honour him, to celebrate him, and that they recognised that their future and their hope was found in their connection and their closeness to him. And the impact of this continual prayer and worship, this setting up of Davidic worship, this tent of meeting, was that Israel saw unprecedented success from a military point of view. They defeated all their enemies. They grew as a nation. They became powerful and successful. Their economy exploded. They became extraordinarily wealthy. They entered a time of incredible peace and prosperity. God literally took a nation of misfits and within a generation they became a global superpower. We see later in, in Solomon, David's son, who takes the crown on from David, that people travel far and wide to say, how have you done this? How can we learn? How can we enjoy the riches and the blessings that you have? But all of the blessing came as they focused first and foremost on the presence of God. When we planted our church seven or eight years ago, we... We're given this prophetic word that's been really important for us. This word that we'd be woven in worship. And Gastric Music has just released this album called Woven in Worship, which I love. These songs that have come from our community that kind of express the longings and the prayers in our hearts. But this prophetic word was saying, look, if you focus on Jesus, if you focus on the presence, if you focus on spending time together looking to him, then God will do an amazing thing amongst you. He'll begin to knit you together. He'll begin to outwork strategies and plans. Uh, breakthroughs will happen in the city simply as you gather to worship. As you focus on that, a thing that some might think is a waste of time, actually that will be the most effective and powerful thing you do. And God will weave you together to be an army that can make a difference in this city. And that's been our journey. Over the last years, as we've worshipped, as we've grown to be a worshipping, prayerful community, we've seen God do amazing things. Just last week, at the 6pm, two girls in our youth, 15-year-old girls, they invited a couple of their friends to come along. And if you're a teenager, if you remember being a teenager, you know, inviting a friend to church is a big deal. That is scary. I mean, that is putting yourself out there. But they did, and these friends who'd never been to church before, had no background in faith, said, yeah, we'll come. And so rather nervously, these girls and our youth brought their friends. And at 6 p.m., the band kick off, and it's fairly full on, I'd say. But these girls immediately just began to weep. And throughout the whole of the worship, they just sobbed. And afterwards, they were like, what was that? We've never experienced anything like that. What happened to us? What's going on? And these two girls in our youth group were kind of like, oh, well, I think it might be God. I don't know. Uh, but they had this amazing encounter with the Spirit of God. And 
they're wanting to come today, Sunday, to church, and one of the girls is wanting to bring her parents. And what was it? I can tell you it wasn't the powerful music, you know, that, that, that keyboard pad hits a certain tone, which just like breaks down emotions and releases sobbing. They encountered the presence of God. I remember leading worship once and at the end this guy came up to me and I could see he was visibly moved and then I suddenly did a double take because the person in front of me was a very successful Hollywood A-lister. Now I mean like full-on celebrity, not kind of the celebrities who do um, Strictly Come Dancing that someone has to always explain to me (laughs) who any of them actually are. (laughs) You know, everyone here would know this person. And he came up to me and said, what just happened to me? I've just sobbed my way through all of that singing. And he'd been at a low ebb in his life. And I said, that's the Spirit of God. You're experiencing something of the love of the Father. And it struck me that here's a guy who had in the eyes of the world everything, money, adulation, success, could have whatever he wanted. And yet there was a deep longing for more that something was being met deep within him, that was moving him, that was opening him up, that ultimately was the presence of God. And it fascinates me that we're seeing so much happen in our worship, so much transformation, salvation, healing, before we've explained anything. Often we're seeing people come to faith in the midst of our worship before we've given a, a very clear, rational, cerebral presentation of the gospel message. Now, when we are so addicted to intellect and value that so highly, sometimes that can confront us. We don't like that idea. Surely, you know, you explain clearly what's happening, what Jesus has done, four-point plan, and what it means to follow him. And of course, all of that is so important. But actually, when the presence of God is being enjoyed, it's tangibly present. When people walk into buildings and communities where they sense the presence of God, something connects spirit to spirit. And it projects them, God willing, on a journey of transformation. We need to be a people of God's presence. The primary call of the church today is not evangelism. It's not mission. The primary call of the people of God is worship. That is what we're created for. That is what we're designed for. When we get our worship right, everything flows from that place. And David embodies this. King David, when he's bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, what do we read? We read that he was wearing a linen ephod and he was dancing with all his might before the Lord and all the people of Israel could see it. And this was confusing because everyone would expect David to be wearing his royal robes. This was a moment to celebrate the new king, to communicate his worth and his wealth and his power and his success. Almost David was to become like the gods. But David was having none of it. He takes off the royal robes and he wears the linen ephod, the the robe that would have been worn by the priests and the Levites, those who gave of themselves to minister before the Lord. And David was saying, hey, first and foremost, my primary identity is not as a king, it's as a worshipper. And he goes on in in Psalm 24. This is the psalm that was written for this procession. We read that it's written for the people of Israel to sing as the Ark of the Covenant was returned to Jerusalem. It says this, lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. 
Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. It's like David was saying, there is a king. There is someone who is strong and mighty, but it is not me. The rightful king of this nation is God almighty. And we will give our lives to follow him. Symbolically, he was saying, I'm not a king coming to sit on a throne. I'm a priest coming to lead you into the presence of God. And that's what we need in our society. Leaders who will see their primary identity, not as head teachers, CEOs, graphic designers, parents, medics, whatever it is that you take off those robes and say, first and foremost, I'm a worshiper, I'm a priest, and wherever I go, I wanna carry the presence of God and I wanna introduce you so that you can tangibly experience touch and know that there's a God who loves you, who's for you. And it won't simply happen through persuasive words, although our words and our articulation of the gospel and the good news is essential. And some of you are called and gifted to release and use words to articulate and to bring down lies and ideologies that we have stepped into as a society to see them for what they are, useless, worthless, leading to dead ends and to articulate the hope we have in Christ. But for others, it's what people experience when they're around us. They'll experience a peace that passes human understanding. They'll encounter a love that is different from any other love they've known on planet Earth. And that is the presence of God in us, working through us. We are called to be worshippers. And so as a church, we want to sharpen this vision to gather and to scatter. But my firm conviction is this, that a community that is obsessed about Jesus, that is radically devoted to Jesus, will also become a community that bursts with compassion and care and radical sacrifice for those around who are in desperate need. Again, it's David Fritch who says this, that prioritize presence in the church and you get kingdom in the city. We become a people of God's presence, give everything to follow that, to spend time in that place, rather than becoming set away, kind of closed from, hidden away from the world, actually will be propelled forward into the world. And we'll see the presence of God and His kingdom being outworked in the world, transforming it. And boy, does Birmingham need the presence of God. I mean, talking about a rebuild project, fallen down, ruins, the, the, the economy and the bankruptcy and the, just the devastating potential consequences and unknowns. And we know that no leader, no government, no shifting of political parties is going to suddenly bring the solution. We need something more that can only be found in God Almighty. And if we're thinking about compassion, thinking about selfless love, one of the first names that often comes to people is Mother Teresa, who gave her life to care for the dying poor in Calcutta, India, She was often put on a pedestal as a social activist, remarkable lady of compassion. And she said, if you see me as that, you've got it wrong. You've got it backwards. My primary identity is not as an activist. And she said, she described herself, I am a contemplative in the heart of the world. I'm a worshiper. 
I'm a lover of Jesus Christ. I spend time on my knees in silence before him, reflecting on scripture, sitting before my God. That is what I'm about. And she went on to say when she received Nobel Peace Prize that actually it was in prayer and worship, in time with Jesus Christ that she was led to the poor and the dying. But it's worship first, service, mission, outreach, flows out of that place. Because worship ultimately is the goal of mission. Why is it we long to see people receive the love of God, to be transformed? What is it that propels us out? Well, it's so that we can see people who are far off become worshipers. People far off discover the love of God. But you don't want to just discover the love of God in a moment. You want to live in the love of God. And that means you suddenly become a worshiper. Because when we worship God, we most fully receive and enjoy His goodness and His life and His mercy and His freedom and His healing. The reason we go and share this faith with our friends, why we want to be a church that serves the city, is because we want everyone to experience that. To move from being slaves to being worshippers. That's what mission is about. That's why John Piper says this, mission exists because worship doesn't. Mission exists because worship doesn't. And so we worship and we find that it propels us out so that others can taste and see that the Lord is good. But worship also, it fuels the mission because we cannot commend that which we don't cherish. We can't proclaim something we don't prize. And it's in worship, it's in adoration that we suddenly find ourselves naturally just sharing with our friends. Let me tell you what God has done for me. we, We talk to a friend who's going through a tough period, a tough time, and it's like, I want to pray for you because... I know a God who can heal you. I know a God who can bring a solution to this problem. And it comes out of a place of worship that we're sent to serve those around us. If evangelism and mission is done out of duty, it is lifeless. It's ineffective. And again, there's a challenge that the church comes worshippers before we pioneer and go to serve others around us. But I believe this is a time for us as a church to go to next step levels with our worship, but also to release intercessors. There are some amazing intercessors in our communities who are praying, who are giving themselves to prayer. But we are facing extraordinary battles and we need to understand that we fight these battles on our knees. And we need people who are going to pioneer, who are going to stand up and step out, praying, seeking God, calling on his name, claiming all the authority we have, giving time to this. And I want to encourage you. I think there's more to come from us as a church and what it means to be a people of prayer. You know, I love what we're seeing. Tuesday mornings, a whole bunch gathering at St. Luke's to pray. It's beautiful. We have our kingdom come nights every so often. It's amazing, this place full of people worshipping. And praying, and we've just finished a week of prayer, assemble. But there is more. There is more. Uh, my strong conviction, and in fact, I haven't felt more strongly about anything for a long time, is that if we have any hope of seeing some of the things we long to see in our own lives and the lives of people around us, we can only access it through prayer. We can only access it 
through prayer. And the danger and challenge for someone like me who's an activist is I can elevate productivity above prayer because I feel like I'm making a difference. I feel like I'm bringing breakthrough when I'm going for it. We're doing things. But no program, no initiative, no plan, no preach is ever going to be enough. And I believe the dreams God's put in my heart and Rachel's heart, our heart, will be outworked through prayer and worship. And so we need you. We need you. We need one another to step out in prayer. And so we're just beginning to explore what really this means for us. I mean, I would love to believe in time that we could be a church and a community of continual prayer and worship. I'm not saying 24-7 necessarily, but there are rhythms all throughout the week that encourage and mobilize and release people to pray and to worship, that we're constantly ministering before God in worship, but we're also constantly praying for his kingdom to come. And so one next step is on Wednesday nights, starting, I think, a week on Wednesday, we're going to start nights called Altar. And these are going to be nights of worship where we're going to devote ourselves to Jesus, to praise, to adoration, and to prayer. But we're also going to see what God wants to do amongst us. Because as well as releasing the intercessors, I strongly feel that we need to release the prophets. We need eyes to see, ears to hear what God is doing. And not what God is doing in a church in America or Australia or London. But what is God doing here in this city? Where is God calling us to put our attention and our energy and our resources? And we need the prophets to say and to articulate uh, what God is doing. And of course, you then bring discernment and pastoral thought and wisdom and strategy. But we need to release it. And my reading of scriptures, we so often see in context of prayer and worship, the prophets are released. The prophets are let loose and freed up. And I imagine these nights on Wednesday, and I, I genuinely, I don't care if it's three people or 300 people, because we're going to be ministering to God. We're going to be honoring Him. And we'll be going to be declaring as a church we're all about you but also I just believe and I could see these nights being places where people you've got a massive decision to make at work a massive decision around the future of your family or where you're going to live or your purpose or your finances or a complex relational thing you need breakthrough and it's like do you know what I'm going to get to altar I'm going to get to a prayer meeting I'm going to bring it before God I'm going to lay it on the altar and say God your will be done God you move in power I'd love to imagine that these nights and wherever it goes in time could be places where the whole of the city can come even if they don't understand Jesus that they can come because they become places where unusual miracles begin to happen where people think oh I, I just want to find a bit of breakthrough so I'm going to get to that prayer meeting I don't know I just sense God is awakening something in us. I can't quite see it. I don't fully know what it looks like. And I know you should really only share vision when you've got it clearly articulated and neat and tidy. But I don't care because it's in me and I know that this is what we need to give ourselves to. And God will lead us. I end with this. Amos, this prophetic word, it closes with these lines. And I love how the New Living Translation puts it. It says, the time will come, says the Lord, when the grain... And the grapes will grow faster than they can be harvested. 
one of the things I'm understanding about my leadership. It's often, I often feel things before I fully understand them. And I'm trying to grow as a leader to be truly myself and not to be afraid of the unknowns and the emotion. So bear with. Amos is saying, if you get the worship right, if you restore the tabernacle of David, the tent of meeting, put God at the center, then look what will happen. You'll see a harvest of souls. The plowman will overtake the reaper. Basically, it's an agricultural image. It's a miraculous agricultural image that as soon as you sow the seed, the harvest grows and the plowman can't quite keep up. And there's so much vegetation, so much crops, abundance, that they can't pull it all in and store it properly. That actually, as soon as it's planted, it's there. Ah, I've got to harvest it. And it's just a thought that would blow anyone's Minds And what Amos is doing here is he's using an earthly example to communicate a heavenly spiritual truth that there is going to be a day where God is going to move at such a pace that you can't keep up. In Acts chapter 15, the Apostle James, he refers to this passage, this prophetic word in Amos 9. And as the early church is exploding and they're seeing credible salvation, church plants arising all over the place, healings, just the whole early church exploding into life. Apostle James is saying, we know about this. Amos prophesied about this, that as we become a worshipping community and now Jesus is at the centre of our worship. Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. He is the Messiah. And as we become a worshipping community around the person of Jesus Christ, we were told, that we would see such a harvest of souls across all the nations. And the early church, you get this sense that they can barely keep up with what God is doing. And I believe that's why Rachel and I are here in Birmingham. It's why we love this church. It's why we're pouring ourselves out on this church and for Birmingham because I dare to believe that we could see a day where the harvest is coming. Rather than ones and twos, a handful here, a handful there, which I'm so grateful for, every person who gives their life to Christ, it's like, wow, wow. And it's not a given in the church today in the UK. I dare to dream, believe that that our buildings, not just our church, but other churches in Birmingham, won't be able to contain all the people coming, that we won't, quite know how to keep up in terms of discipleship. You know, we won't have the facilities to baptize enough people that we won't be able to keep up with the harvest, that as quick as we start, something explodes. One thing I know is we will not be able to see that unless we're a people of worship and prayer. And I end with the words of Jesus because he's always right. He says... When asked, what is the greatest commandment? What is the best thing you can do with your life? What is the most important thing anyone should do with their lives? He says this, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. 
This is the greatest commandment. Second, which is like it, amazingly important, incredibly valuable, is to love your neighbor as yourself. If we get those the wrong way around, we'll be ineffective. Because what use is it to ultimately care for someone's physical needs if we're not caring for their greatest need, which is salvation and it's life in Christ? Worship first. Mission flows out of that. Presence in the church, kingdom in the city. Why don't we stand? Thanks for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out. If you want to find out more, visit our website, gastric.org, or follow us on Instagram at Gastric Church.